following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Hi, everybody. This is former WWE superstar Al Snow. And- CWN is Sean Oliver. My name is Eugene. And you are watching the Insider's Edge podcast. Now get on the train. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show here on the WCWA Network. I am your host with the most on the West Coast, California in Fury, and it is 11 p.m. at night. I'm very, very excited. Very, very excited. It is my distinct honor to bring on right now a guy that wrote this book here. If you can see it, there's a bit of a glare. It's the Nitro book. He's the one and only author extraordinaire, Guy Evans. Guy, how are you going today? I'm doing very well. I'm here in New York uh, speaking with you, Carl, and, and looking forward to getting into the Nitro book. Thanks for having me on. That's okay, bro. Guy, I'm really excited to talk to you today and uh, find a little bit out about the process of you and this wonderful, wonderful book that has just been getting so much praise throughout um, a lot of fans of WCW and people inside the wrestling business as well. Um, yeah, that, that's right. I, I suppose I should start by saying, you know, the, the second part of what you mentioned there, Carl, has really been... The, the aspect of the response to the book that's really blown me away. You know, I was pretty confident in putting the book together that the WCW fans, which, um, as we just talked about, you know, off the air still exist in Legion to this day. You know, there's so many people almost 20 years after the final show that still go back and, and watch those old shows and have so many fond memories attached to them. Um, I was pretty confident that it would get a a nice reaction from those people. What really took me by surprise was the reaction to the book by those within the wrestling industry. Um, That was something that I didn't see coming at all. You know, I assumed that a number of people that I would interview for the book would eventually get around to reading it. Um, But here we are basically two and a half years after its release, and it seems like you know, whenever I think the momentum for the book is kind of slowing down a little bit, someone else will talk about it on a podcast or a shoot interview, uh, or they'll mention it to to their followers on social media, and it gets a whole new life again. And it's just ah. something that um, just 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 keeps going and keeps going. And I think um, you know part of that hopefully is because of the book, but I think more broadly, um, it's probably because of you know the great television. Um, that existed during those Monday Night Wars, you know, and and both companies just going, uh, going pedal to the metal to come up with with their best content. So it's just amazing that um, the nostalgia for that time period still exists. And there seems to be really no end in sight. Man, I'm totally, I'm totally one of those people, you know what I mean? Uh, And I'll say this before I jump into my (laughs) questions. I, this is when I fell in love with wrestling, like, Mm-hmm. late nineties. Um, I really fell out of love with watching it. Probably strike one was the invasion angle being messed up. Strike two was bringing in the NWO and that being messed up. And then strike mm-hmm. three was the uh, relaunch of ECW when that failed and my excitement for that. And I've been let down again for the third time ever since then, I guess that would be geez, 15 years ago. I just haven't really watched full time. So this is like the time period that means so much to me. And I'm watching everything chronologically again. 
I'm watching WCW Worldwide Saturday night, all the small shows, uh, you know, because I want to be able to say I'm the biggest WCW nerd out there that watched every piece of programming, even if it was 90 minutes worth of squash matches. So uh, that's how much it means to me. I'm willing to put myself through that pain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, no, it's, you know, and and what, what you described there is not at all unique i mean um we were talking just before we started recording about uh neil pruitt who is uh, someone who's become you know a very good friend of mine someone who worked with wcw of course he was the voice of the nwo one of the feature producers with wcw um and someone who i interviewed for the book and i was having a conversation with him recently and you know him just describing that every time he goes to a show every time he goes to um you know some kind of event a convention and so on just hearing a variation of that story that you just would love to be a wrestling fan again and you know i'll go on youtube and i'll check out those great clips and watch those promos watch those great matches but there's just something about today's product that doesn't grab me and you know to be fair you know i would say today's wrestling um you know is still able to command a very loyal audience on a on a weekly basis if you look at the television ratings in the united states and you look at that that key demographic and the success relatively speaking that wrestling is still able to have um there's there's certainly you know something to be said for that but for i think for those people who were made a fan um in in that mid to late 90s period or even those people who came along maybe during the the 80s boom or even in in one of the the, the peaks of uh wrestling's popularity before that um, it's it's just really hard to compare. I think it's uh, it speaks to the fact that not only has the wrestling business changed so much, but also um, I think entertainment and and culture and technology and and everything that that sort of we grew up with has changed so much as well. Absolutely, man. Absolutely, things have changed quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I want to go back to the beginning as far as it's concerned with you, and I want to know how you first became a fan of wrestling when you were a young man. So probably similar to yourself, just seeing uh, seeing uh, WCW and the WWF both on on television. You know, in the UK, where I grew up, the WWF definitely had much more of a footprint than WCW. You know, if you were a wrestling fan in the UK, you probably were a WWF fan, and I think that was pretty much the case for anyone who grew up in Europe at that time. Um, you know, you look at the success that the WWF had, you know, in the, in the mid nineties, where it was a very dry period for the company in the United States, but they were able to go over and do a a tour in Germany, for example, and, um, and, and draw a lot of people. So, um, you know, even though WCW was certainly the lesser known or lesser followed company, um, I was really one of those fans who, who checked out, you know, both of the, the, the main companies and, and was made a fan really through the Monday Night Wars period. Um, and, and similar to, to yourself, um, you know, once WCW went away, um, that was really the extent of my interest in wrestling for quite some time. I think in fairness, again, it's kind of eerie how our, our stories match up, but I, I do remember, you know, staying through the invasion period and the NWO, and then, um, you know, you would have 
sort of one by one in drips and drabs, a lot of these WCW stars would get brought in, whether that's, you know, a Flair, a Steiner, a Goldberg, you know, eventually. Um, and, and somewhere in that sort of 0203 range, I just kind of said, why, this, this is just, just not for me. And I think a lot of wrestling fans get to that point where, you know, whether it's because of changes in your life or changes in the programming, you just kind of move on for a while. And to answer your question, it's quite funny because it really wasn't until probably about 2009, 2010, when a friend of mine made me aware of, you know, um, Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff and Ric Flair and all these guys coming back to get involved with TNA. Um, right. And it just kind of got me thinking about, oh, that, that's right. You know, wrestling was such a big part of being a young man growing up and, so many fond memories attached to that. And I started to go back and look at some of those old shows and read the books around the time and, and look at those documentaries. And I thought to myself, you know, as someone who followed it so closely back then, I feel like there's something that's getting lost here in the way the story's being told. I think there's kind of a, a deeper, richer story that could be told if someone would come around and do it. And finally, around... 2014 after kind of kicking that idea around in my head for a few years I said well if no one else is going to attempt to do it then I'll have a go and it wasn't until 2018 that the book came out by the time it came out you know as you know there were over 120 people that I ended up interviewing for the project so it became this kind of mammoth you know monster that um you know at some points I was thinking yeah, I was kind of wondering if the book was ever going to get yeah. completed. Uh, it took quite quite a long period of time. Um, but finally, in mid-2018, the book came out. And as you talked about, you know, the reaction to it has just been uh, pretty incredible. and something that I definitely couldn't have predicted. Absolutely, man. Uh, you know, and as you're talking about all that, it's, it's making me think. So th there were things that we're going to bring up later on. But, you know, it's just that, that constant narrative that was out there about how mm -hmm. WCW died and, and I will bring that up later, but um, you know, it, for me as a fan, I knew, I knew from watching hundreds of shoot interviews, I knew what the reason was. I knew it wasn't Vince Russo or the NWO being too, being put on television too much or anything like that. It had nothing to do with that. And just this constant narrative from the WWE on their network, uh, I would get pretty mad at them knowing that they're putting this narrative out there for their own personal gain, I suppose, in, in the eyes of the fans to make them believe their narrative and not know that there is actually a tr more truer story out there. So when I heard about this book myself, I was excited because I was like, finally, the real truth will be out there and, and people will finally understand what exactly went on in that company. Yeah, and I think to your point, one of the things that I noticed, as I'm sure you did as well, um, while they would show these these old you know documentaries and the Monday Night War series and all of that stuff that's on the network now, is you would have a lot of talking heads who um, either weren't with WCW at the time who were kind of commenting on well here's what happened in you know ninety nine or two thousand or what have you, or you would simply have the same rotation of people commenting time after time, sort of reinforcing the narrative. And don't get me wrong, you know, in that in that second case that I just described, there's a lot of opinions there that I think are definitely valid and valuable. But it always struck me as rather curious that 
well, we're hearing about this guy, you know, Jamie Kellner, but we never get to hear from Jamie Kellner. We're yeah. hearing about Harvey Schiller, but yet we never get to hear from Harvey Schiller, um, you know, and so on and so forth. There were so many sort of shadowy figures um, that would get brought up and discussed and in a very authoritative manner, we would hear, well, this, this is exactly why they decided to do what they did, you know, kind of take our word for it. Um, and so I, th I thought there was really an opportunity there to, at the very least, you know, try to track down some of these people. Um, and then once I did, I realized, well, you know, not only am I going to be able to reveal maybe one or two things that people didn't know before, I think I'm going to be able to reveal a whole lot here because there are so many important people who've never had the chance to go on record uh, with, with, you know, what happened during the... Uh, during the entire WCW era. So that was uh, really rewarding to track down some of those people and get their opinions on, on the subject. Absolutely. That's uh, You must have been so excited. I mean, we'll get into that um, very soon. Uh, but another question I had was, we. I mean, you told your story here, but other than Secrets of Nitro, other than this book, were you ever involved in the wrestling business in any way? <laughs> no, not, not at all. And, and that was... That was one of the things I suppose in retrospect was kind of a challenge about doing this is literally imagine. starting out. I mean, starting out with a total blank canvas, right? So you have no contacts, you have no in, you have no one who's going to be able to say, okay, I'll get you this guy's number, that guy, got that guy's number. I'll put in a word for you. None of that. So you're starting from total scratch, which you could see as a disadvantage, but also you could also see it. I think as as uh, as an advantage because um, a lot of people um, I noticed anyway um, associated with WCW expressed to me that they felt they had been burned in the past. They had maybe given their story to someone else and had it misrepresented, or they had kind of been on the sidelines just watching, you know, the videos that we mentioned, checking out the books that had come out and so on, um, and decided. You know, I don't really want to get involved in this because I'm not happy with the way the story is being portrayed. Yeah. Um, once I was able to, I think, represent myself to some of those early interviewees and start to build some credibility with them and help them understand that as best as possible, the purpose of this book is, is to try to portray the truth of what happened as opposed to one random, random guy's opinion on this is why WCW you know, ultimately failed. Um, once, once that started to get going, it was kind of like, um, you know, the domino effect where, you know, once I had established credibility with 10 or 20 people that made it easier now to get to the next, you know, 10 or 20 people and so on. Um, but, but to answer your question, no, you know, starting out, no involvement in the wrestling business, no associations in the wrestling business. Um, as you mentioned, you know, Neil, Pruitt again and I um, started a podcast which was really twofold. I mean, I wanted to get down a lot of his stories, um, and he has some great ones um, about his tenure with WCW. I wanted to get that out there after speaking with him. Um, and we also both thought this could be a kind of a promotional vehicle for the book. So the, the podcast, which is still up there, is called uh, Neil Pruitt's Secrets of Nitro, or you can just type in Secrets of Nitro and you'll find it. Um, we've talked about recently trying to to get some newer episodes out there. So um, hopefully next year, 
once we get out of this um, crazy uh, cluster, you know, what of a year, hopefully we can get some stuff out there. Um, but uh, but no, you know, I did, did the podcast with Neil, but apart from that, you know, um, I was really starting up this whole thing, uh, you know, in a, in a completely new way. Uh, it's unbelievable and very exciting to know that there might be more episodes of the show, but um, also like that's just to me, that's crazy to be like, okay, I have no contacts. I'm starting from ground zero. And of course, once you start getting some people involved, it snowballs, maybe they're talking to one another. This guy's the real deal. This guy isn't going to make a joke of this or spin people's words in a way that they didn't intend. So um, that, that's crazy. So, I mean, as this is happening, you know, uh, I wanted to know, did you have just like a, a short list of, uh, you know, a bunch of people that you wanted and then all of a sudden it just grew and grew and grew? I mean, you said over 120 people you interviewed for this. Did you, in your wildest dreams, believe that it would be that many people? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, <laughs> what I thought what I thought originally is it would be nice to have representation from each of the um, various divisions within WCW. So I thought, you know, it'd be nice to talk to the person who is in charge of marketing, the person who's in charge of finance, the person who's in charge of creative, the person who's in charge of production, um, and try to get a range of opinions from all of these different areas and, and try to synthesize them in the form of a narrative. Um, but once I got into it, I, I sort of thought, you know, I, I need to actually try to speak to everyone because what you would realize is sometimes, you know, the person who was like a tape operator or a production assistant or someone that you, quite frankly, didn't even know worked for WCW, you would come across and you just give them the time to, to tell their story. And a lot of times some of the best content would come from those people. I think the reason for that is that in, in, in a lot of cases, you know, for maybe some of the higher profile names that one would associate with WCW, you know, WCW may have been a highlight or may have in fact been the highlight of their careers, but it's part of possibly a 20 or 30 or, or even longer year association with the wrestling business, right? So in other words, you're asking them to go back to the 90s and talk about something that happened before they did a bunch of other things and maybe happened after they did a bunch of other things. So you're probably going to get, you know, the, the, the highlights are going to come to mind. They're going to be able to give you maybe three or four things that stick out as opposed to, and a lot of people qualify in this next box, as opposed to, you know, there are a lot of people out there that WCW may have been their only time involved in wrestling. It may have been their only time involved in television. Um, for whatever reason, you know, they may regard that time as a very special, uh, you know, number of years in their life because of the money that they were making or the opportunities they had to travel. So what I'm getting at is with those people, um, you know, you would be surprised at, at, at what they retain and what they remember and how they can go back and, and relive conversations and moments from 20 plus years ago as if they had just happened because they've been you know, constantly going over this this time in their life since it occurred because it was such a special time in their life. Um, and that's not to say, by the way, that everyone who has any sort of claim, you know, you take it as gospel and you put it in a book like this, right? So there were quite a number of people that I spoke to that, that quite frankly, none of what they had to say made it in the book because it was clear that what they were saying wasn't truthful, factual, 
Uh, Certainly uh, some people, you know, still have um, scores to settle and maybe have agendas that when they're approached by um, a third party that, hey, I'm I'm working on a story about or a book about WCW, it's like, okay, this is my chance to get back at someone for firing me or for saying something or doing something. So you have to go um, into this always with with a critical eye. Um, and always, you know, especially when you're talking to wrestlers, assume that, okay, this, this person is trying to work, work you, they're trying to work a certain angle, they're trying to get something across. Um, but, um, but no, you know, without the input of all of these people, though, the book wouldn't be, you know, one, one hundredth of what it, what it actually is. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful to everyone who gave their time to, to be interviewed for sure. Right. That's something that I totally never thought about was, you know, I mean, I know Eric Bischoff, sometimes uh, he gets made fun of because he can't recall this or can't recall that. They, these people that make fun of him for that don't seem to realize this guy has been doing so much stuff over the, it's, it's hard to remember every single thing. Your brain's only going to be able to retain so much information when you're doing so much stuff all the time. But I didn't, realize or think about the fact that some of those people that were doing smaller things within the company would probably have this plethora of memories and uh and 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 information to give you because this is the one thing they've probably you know been thinking about more than anything over the last 20 years so i mean that's yeah yeah and and also keep in mind that i think uh, we go into this in in some small part in the book that at that time in the wrestling business, they were not looking to hire fans. So if you went to an interview to be part of the production staff and you overtly presented yourself as, yeah, I'm the, I'm the biggest you know, Goldberg fan in the world or the NWO mm-hmm. or, yeah, I, I can tell you everything about Ric Flair, you know, how many titles he's won and the dates of all of the title changes and all this stuff. Um, they're actually going to look at that as a negative in your favor because there's kind of the implication there that, well, maybe you're not going to be able to tell, you know, Superstar X that he needs to be at this place for a video shoot at this time. Maybe you're not going to be able to reprimand, you know, someone that you're in awe of as a fan because you have an emotional attachment to them. So, um, you know, so a lot of times the higher up you were, I think, in the, in the food chain, the less attached maybe you were to the wrestling product. And therefore, as time goes on, as I say, you, you may only be able to sort of pick apart um you know the the highlights of, of your time there but a lot of times when you get deep into the the roster if you like of who actually worked for the company you would find these these people that were very very passionate about it and you know i, I remember in some instances you know sometimes you would call up people on the phone because a lot of times i was doing this like on a cold call basis right so oh, right. I'm, I'm calling up i'm calling up a i don't know whoever you want to think of. And I've got like 15 seconds to explain like, well, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And this is why you shouldn't hang up on me. Right. So sometimes you would get people like the first reaction is, uh, you know, I don't, not really interested in this, but you know, maybe let me think about it. But sometimes when you really get deep into the weeds and talk about some of these people that we just mentioned, it was like, you know, within a second, yes, I'll do it. I've been waiting for someone to, to, uh-huh. to call me up and, you know, I, I can't wait to, to tell you everything you need to know. So definitely a spectrum, you know, in terms of how people would, would respond to you. But, um, but as I say, sometimes some of the best stuff came, came from that. 
Right. Um, so before I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be real nerdy here and ask you some real nerdy <laughs> questions. Uh, so to anyone out there, look, this is my show. I'm asking the questions. This is what I want to know. But uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I find it interesting that you said there's a lot of cold calling. Um, how are you, uh, how are you finding the information uh, mm. to how are you finding a phone number? How are you finding an email address? How are you going about? Cause it, not everyone's on LinkedIn. Not everyone's right. on how, how are you, how's your process in trying to lock, uh, you know, find these people. Cause with this show, I'm, I'm trying to find people on this sh- to have on this show that um, they don't have any social media. They don't have any contact information. So I'm trying my hardest right. to, to find a way. What was your process? I would just say through every possible means you could think of, um, you know, I, I, I can't say too much because I'll kind of give away my whole method, I suppose, but <laughs> yeah, um, I would just, I would just say in general, you know, just uh, not, not accepting that, you know, um, a particular person is inaccessible until you hear it directly from them um, is definitely a big key in all of this, because sometimes I would, try to get hold of a particular person and I would hear through a third party. Yeah. You know, I don't think they're interested. I spoke to them about it. They're not, not too hot on the idea. And I would just kind of make a mental note. Okay. Well, I'll wait until I can hear that from them because, you know, I don't really know the dynamics of this. Um, and then eventually you get through to that person and realize like, no, they were, they were more than enthusiastic about it. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot that you can find online, but there's also, not everything is going to come to you through Google either, you know, so sometimes you need to be a little bit more creative um, about not just, and I'm not speaking to you, by the way, I'm just saying generally, um, people, people need to sort of think about other tools that they can access to, to get that information. But to your point, there's not like a database that says, here is a list of WCW slash Turner employees, click here for emails, phone numbers, how, you know, home addresses. Um, you know, one of the things that was helpful as well, I have to say was, um, I did have the opportunity to sit down with quite a few of these people in person. So I was able to do a number of in-person interviews as well. And I think that was really helpful again, in terms of building the credibility and getting an assurance from those people that, you know, if they were asked about their experience with me, they would represent it in a positive way. One of the things that happened, and I don't know if I've talked about this, maybe Neil and I did on, on a show, but fairly early on in the, in the process, so I'm talking like a few months in where I've interviewed a few people here or there, things are slowly coming together, is I had a former staff member um, who worked for WCW, who actually, so I, I live in New York and they were going to be in New York and they asked if they could, they could um, have a meeting with me. So I kind of figured, I know what's going on here. It's the word has got out. There's a book that's being developed. Some guy, some guy we never heard of is asking questions. So I could kind of put the pieces together in my head. And I I figured this is, this person is kind of maybe speaking on the behalf of some other people here and trying to figure out what's going on. Right. So once I had that meeting and it went very well and it was, you know, everything was peachy, um, that kind of opened up the floodgates as well for a lot more people after that. But I, I suppose I was lucky enough to have that thought at that time that this probably wasn't just a coincidence that 
hey, let, you know, I'm in New York, let's get together. It was more so along the lines of, all right, you know, where's this thing going? This guy is poking around, he's doing some research, let's, let's try to cut him <laughs> off in the past. So that's, that's an interesting thing that happened. Wow, that's so, oh man, that is great. I love, I love learning stuff like that. That's really cool. Um, so another question I had was, who was the first person that you contacted that you got your first interview with and how did that go? So there's a guy by the name of Rob Garner, who was one of the vice presidents with WCW, actually all the way from, I want to say either 89 or 90, all the way until the end of the company. And wow. for, whatever, for whatever reason, I don't know why, I, I probably could look back in my email and figure it out. Um, I'm not sure why, but he was the first person that I contacted and I heard back from, from him pretty quickly and got him on the phone and, and did the interview. And he was the first interview, and that would have been in January of 2015. You know, And so, again, at that point, the thought was, okay, now I've spoken to him. He worked on the on the advertising and sales end of the business. So I thought, okay, I've kind of got that covered for now. Let me see if I can speak to his equivalent in other divisions. Um, but then by the midpoint of that year, that thought process morphed into more along the lines of, as I said, trying to make this kind of an exhaustive thing where you speak to Turner people, you speak to WCW people, you talk to the wrestlers, talk to people behind the scenes. And even I think if you look at the book, you'll find there are a number of people on the periphery of the wrestling business who have their say in this story as well, right? So people that may have dealt with an Eric Bischoff, for example, for a period of time, you'll hear from, from some of those people directly also. Um, obviously, the, the dream scenario would have been able to get uh, direct input from Ted Turner. You know, I knew going in that that, was, uh, that would have put the, the cherry on the Sunday, but that yeah. was always yeah. going to be, you know, pretty unlikely. And, and I, I learned pretty early on about some of his health issues, which I think um, in the last year and a half or two years have been made public to everyone. So right. that, kind of, that kind of, you know, and I, and I did speak to a number of his assistants and people who speak with him on a, on a very regular basis. And I was kind of getting an, you know, an update on all of that. Um, and so I was able to accept, I suppose, okay, that's probably not going to be able to happen. Um, but I think you, you hear from enough people who work closely with him, who were attached to him, affiliated with him, um, that I would like to think it, it certainly uh, makes up for it in the end. Right. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's, that's number one there to, to, to where we've gotten Ted would have been huge. But um, mm -hmm. as you're saying, you know, there, there's so much more, um, you know, from the people below him that it may not in the end have been uh, entirely necessary. Um, right, right. Uh, I, I know you mentioned, uh, I think when you spoke with Conrad, that you couldn't mm. get Brad Siegel, uh, mm. which, is, uh, which is a big shame because he was right there at the end. Um, why did that one fall through? Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. I, I think somewhere in the book, towards the end of the book, uh, there's some content that um, briefly describes my interaction with with Brad Siegel. Um, so, to make a long story short, you know, after quite a bit of back and forth, um, we were able to to set upon a date and time for an interview, and you know, called him at that time. He answered. We started talking. We started getting into the interview. We started talking about a number of the subjects I wanted to ask him about. 
where I think he got very uneasy was the prospect that he would be quoted on the record for the book. Uh. And this, this is where I kind of had to make a decision. I, I had to ask myself, you know, how important is it for me to ask someone like Brad Siegel to go on the record here? And, and I felt at that time it was actually very important because I felt that <clears throat> there'd been so much conjecture um, and hearsay and gossip about what his role was, especially when it comes to the last year of WCW's existence. I felt that it was very important that that he actually um, was was quoted in the book, um, but that ended up becoming kind of the the stickling point for him. Um, you know, he was he he sort of gave me the impression that okay, maybe there's a way to work that out. You know, we maybe can come up with some kind of an agreement where um, you know I can ensure that I'm protected from my end, that kind of thing. But eventually, that fell through. So I think there were still aspects of that conversation that I was able to use to, to help me with the book um, in terms of just in a more broad fashion, understanding, you, you know, some of the dynamics at play with regard to uh, WCW and Turner. So it wasn't a total loss. It's just that, you know, I wasn't able to actually get him on the record. Um, and that's, you know, that's a decision that, that he decided to make. And, you know, whenever you reach out to people for something like this, there's always a risk that that could happen, right? Because you have to ask yourself, um, what, what's in it for them? I mean, you know, they're being contacted by someone they've never heard of who's putting together a book and, and wants to get them to truthfully answer, you know, in many cases, some very tough questions that they've never talked about before. Um, and so that's why I say, you know, I'm just very grateful to everyone who kind of chose the opposite route and said, well, you know, yeah, I'm happy for you to, to put me in there and, you know, they trusted that they were going to be represented, you know, in, in an accurate way. Right. Yeah. I mean, cause like his story is, I mean, for me, uh, that whole story with, with Eric and Vince Russo with Brad kind of being stuck in the middle with those two. Um, mm. I've, I've heard Eric's side of the story. I've heard Vince's side of the story. They're two polar opposite <laughs> stories about what went on there it would have been so nice to uh see what brad had to say about that but um yeah yeah you're, you're right and i i think you know i have heard i i think we may have talked about this with conrad um i have heard from someone that i would say is a very reliable source on this matter that you know he has been very much aware of the book since it came out um I know from this person that, you know, he has sort of inquired um, quite a bit about it. So um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily an impossibility that, that that may be able to happen at some point in the future. So we'll, we'll see when it comes to that. I don't think it's a, an open and shut case. Ah, excellent, bro. Um, uh, so another question I had, uh, there's a whole bunch of just random things here. I, I, yeah. uh, I wanted to see if you could just name drop a couple of people that you were really surprised that you managed to get to interview for the book. Yeah, I would say um, a guy by the name of uh, Stuart Snyder, who was also someone who was involved in an awful lot of conjecture, shall we say, speculation, specifically as it relates to the WCW cancellation and sale. Um, you know, if people want to, Google his name, you might be able to pull up that 
he was actually the president of the WWF um, at the time oh, of the wow. WCW sale. And he had previously worked with Turner, um, had a, a relationship with Brad Siegel. And so there were, you know, a lot of people, I think, connecting the dots and trying to figure out, well, you know, was this basically like an inside man who helped to, um, to, to sabotage any possibility that WCW would be um, sold to, to someone else for, you know, fair market value. Um, so I was surprised that, that I was able to get in touch with him, but that was, that was like an 18 month process from getting in touch with him. And again, I don't want to misrepresent myself. It's not like every single day I'm calling him on the phone and texting him, Hey, yeah. you want to do it? Do you want to do it? But, you know, periodically checking in for like 18 months, you know, can we make this happen? Do you need more information? Da, 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 to finally getting him to do it. And then getting him on the record and, and, you know, you'll see in the book, he's quoted extensively. I mean, quite, quite a lot of what he had to say made it in the book. So Stuart Snyder would definitely be one. I think Jamie Kellner would, would absolutely, yeah. be you know, that was like, you know, you talk about um, dream scenarios, obviously Ted Turner himself would be number one on that list, but like Jamie Kellner was, um, fairly fairly soon after that i think so so that would be another one and even harvey schiller i mean harvey schiller regardless of like what his name might mean to wrestling fans if you look at his background he's had a very distinguished respected long career in dare i say you know quote unquote legitimate sports right this guy has had just huge positions with you know, organizations like the IOC, for example, and he's worked in professional baseball and, um, you know, all, I mean, even before he worked in sports, I mean, the guy, if you look at his background and what he was able to do, it's very, very impressive. Um, not someone that you would necessarily imagine would, would have the time or have the, the scope to do something like this, but he was actually very, um, very keen to, to talk. So, um, so Harvey Schiller would be another one. Those those three are probably the three that that immediately come to mind. Yeah, I mean, man, to get Jamie Kellner, you know, to, to mention the letters WCW to him, knowing how hated he is by many people from what's mm. been put out there about he was the one that killed WCW. He's the one that made that decision to take it off, off the air. Um, so for him to say yes to do it, I guess maybe he wanted to, give his point of view so that can finally be out there and maybe he can be a little less hated. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I just wanted to mention a couple other names and just, uh, you know, ask me about your experiences, uh, you know, uh, working with them on this book. Um, Eric Bischoff is definitely one that's interesting to me. How was Eric when you first contacted him and, you know, how do you feel that all went? Obviously Eric's a big fan of the book. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, I think when I interviewed Eric, it was um, about, we spoke for about four and a half, maybe five hours over the course of two separate days. Oh my God. So just just right off the bat, you know, I was very, again, very appreciative to him that although I think I was able to bring about some things and subjects that he hadn't necessarily spoke about before, the general topic, you know, and, and think about at this time as well. Um, you know, this is after you've had the Monday Night Wars documentary, 
-hmm. In fact, this is after you've had the the first Monday Night Wars documentary, if you remember that one, the video release. And then when I spoke to him, this would have been after the network, you know, 20 part series or whatever it was on on the Monday Night Wars. Um, And just just so much said and written and and talked about since WCW closed its doors. And and obviously not a lot of it, um, you know, positive on on his end. So um, for him to, once again, give that time was was something I was very grateful for and um, I do remember that you know speaking to him he definitely came alive um, whenever he was asked about a lot of the um, the the research and 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 branding efforts and, uh, and and things of that nature that went into making Nitro a success you know I think to this day if you listen to his podcast he loves talking about those things he loves talking about um you know being able to develop concepts that resonate with the wrestling audience and um i think he's he's very much in tune with that with that um side of things for sure um i think some of the questions that i had to ask him that related to more of the you know some of the creative decisions that were made i think he was less enthusiastic uh, to talk about but Again, understandably so, because the guy has probably given, you know, 50,000 interviews since 2001 mm. and stuff. But the, the, the element of this, which I think is really quite remarkable, and you kind of touched on that, is his reaction to the book once it was out, which I obviously had no idea, um, you know, was coming. I, did, I assumed he was going to read it for sure. Um, by that point, his podcast with Conrad was up and running. So I figured like, okay, at some point they'll get around to it. But I remember the first time I heard him address it on the show and I was just blown away with really um, the fact that he was able to separate some of his personal feelings about the way he was represented at times in the book from his larger perspective on the book as a project. And what I'm getting at is I think if you or I um, were written about, right, in, in, let, let's say an organization that we worked for was the subject or, or worked for was the subject of a book. And there was some content in that book that, okay, maybe um, portrayed as positively at times, but there was also some stuff in there that could be considered maybe, you know, professionally embarrassing or not too flattering. I think there's a natural human tendency to kind of dismiss the project outright and tell people, ah, oh, it's, a, it's a bunch of bullshit, you know, don't, don't believe any of it, it's not worth your time. The fact that he was able to say, look, some of, and I think he's, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but I'm not too far off, he's been able to say, there's, there's some reading in this thing that's pretty tough for me to do, and there's some things that I was not happy to read about myself, however, you know, this is, um, you know, the most accurate or the most truthful telling of the WCW story, and you should go and check it out. And, you know, subsequent to that, I've had the chance to, to um, meet with him on a couple of occasions. You know, we did the, the StarCast convention in uh, Las Vegas, where um, actually, and this is where, again, I'm so appreciative to Conrad and his people for building a panel discussion around the Nitro book, um, which is just unbelievable. Um, and something, again, when you're writing a book like this, you're not even thinking something like that could happen. Um, so it's just been nothing but positive. It's just been nothing but respect, nothing but um, just just very enjoyable interactions I've had with him since then. So 
again, I just I just have a lot of respect for that myself because I know that it's it's very hard a lot of times to separate, you know, your your personal feelings about something from your kind of broader outlook on what that thing is. So I think that's pretty incredible. Absolutely. And I can imagine with Eric, um, because of the past and and what people have said in books or documentaries, I can tell that he would immediately be like, all right, like already not trusting just the mention that someone he doesn't know is writing a book about WCW. So I, I could just see that he, you know, because he's been burned before. Did you feel that way uh, when you first spoke to him or um, what did it only take a couple minutes and he started to realize that you were the you know, genuine thing? You know, it's funny because obviously I still have those interviews taped. So I haven't listened to them obviously since the book came out, but I know I can remember the, the first time we spoke exactly what you just described happened, which was about five, 10 minutes in, you know, I think he's at, he actually said, you know, wow, this is okay. This, these are great questions. Let me think about this for a second. And I think he was kind of not, I don't want to say put on his heels, but he was just put in a position where, all right, this is a little bit different than what I thought it was going to be. Right. Like, um, because, you know, I'm sure there've been many interviews over the years. The first question is like, all right, the finger poke of doom, like what, what the fuck was going on there? Or, you know, Star- let's talk about Starcade. Like what, what were you doing? Um, and I think, you know, what's really important as well, and I would encourage anyone who goes about embarking on a project like this, you know, of any description where you're dealing with people and you're entering a world that you were not part of, is to always have empathy, you know, for those people as well and try to put yourself in the shoes of like, okay, I'm on the other end of the line here and this person I've never heard of is asking me a bunch of questions. Some of them, you know, a lot of them professional, but some of them may kind of border on personal about a really important time in my life from 20 plus years ago. Like, so you don't go in like all guns blazing and what were you thinking? What were you doing? You know, you, you try to try to... Um, you know, make sure that you, you ask them about things that they're, um, you know, that they want to talk about. You try to figure out, like, what is it that's going to bring them to life? What is it that's going to make them open up? Um, what is it that that is going to make them not give you, like, a stock answer just to get to the next question? Yeah. Um, and so that, that just takes, um, you know, definitely a lot of practice, and it just takes, like, listening to the other person and not feeling like... Um, you know, oh, you as the person asking the questions are the most important person. It's like your job is just to try to get this person to open up and and get across some information that you can pass on, you know, to your audience. So hopefully that makes sense. It does. Yeah. And um, I, I will say from my perspective on this podcast, I, there, the people, there are so many wrestling podcasts out there these days. And this podcast basically started because of the pandemic and being locked down and me and Jack were bored and we're like, let's just, let's just go with this and see how far we can go with it. And we've done quite well uh, in our first year, but um, I, there have been times where I've been interviewing someone and I can tell right at the beginning, they think this is probably just another lame show where they're going to be asked the same questions that they've been asked mm-hmm. many times before. 
but then I can see like one guy said, he's only, got, I've only got half an hour. I've only got half an hour. He ended up having so much fun with me. We ended up we're going like an hour and 20 minutes. And he's like, man, I thought this was just going to be just the same old thing, but uh, right. you know, this, uh, we could have done another hour if you wanted to. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I totally understand where you're coming from there. Um, and, no, and it's I, nice. I, it's absolutely. nice to turn someone when you feel they're a little bit anxious about it, and then you turn them. It feels good. You, you know, you're doing your job. No. And I think, I, you know, I can tell that's something that you do very well is, you know, a- asking a question and knowing like when to jump in, when to lay out, when to let that person kind of, because, you know, in doing the book, um, just to kind of tie this all together, that was something that, you know, that I was very cognizant of as well. It's like, you want to try to put this person at ease. You don't want them like sweating bullets on the other end of the phone, feeling like one false move or one false word could be disastrous for them because it's going to end up in print. You know, you almost want, want it to turn into like a conversation, right? Um, so it's not this sort of scary formal thing of, you know, I'm going to interview on, on the record for this book and I want you to know you're being recorded and, you know, anything that you could say may be used against you. Like, you just want them to feel like, okay, this this guy is legitimately trying to find out some things. Let me tell him what I can remember, what I know, and let's kind of just see what happens. And you know, there's there's definitely like re- the wrestling business itself. There's definitely a lot of psychology to it for sure. Yeah, and I'll say this: the only two people I wasn't able to turn them was New Jack and Big Vito. Unfortunately, I. I was really excited to talk to Big Vito too, but I just couldn't get him interested. I I knew that I wasn't Mm. getting anything out of it. But anyway, um, uh, Vince Russo, uh, was he someone that you were able to uh, interview? And and, uh, how, you know, again, another person who's been burned by misinformation out there, I feel. Um, How did he react to uh, being approached? Yeah, so Vince Russo is quoted in the book, you know, pretty extensively, I think, from the time that he's introduced in a chapter that's called uh, Vicious Vincent that goes into some of his origins, you know, on Long Island and running his video store and uh, how he got introduced to the wrestling business with his, you know, newsletter and radio show and and all that kind of stuff. We go through that whole story. Um, You know, I, I think, again, similar to with Stuart Snyder, you know, much of what he had to say made it uh, into the book. And, you know, what I tried to do at all times was, you know, that there are some things I think that you can say definitively are factual, right? So if um, we know, we know that when Goldberg uh, fought Hogan at the Georgia Dome, we know that Goldberg won that match, we can go online, we can see the video, okay, that happened, that's not in dispute. When you're talking about things that happen behind closed doors, you know, a lot of times there are multiple interpretations of those things. Okay. So the, the various principles involved in those meetings may all have a different, different recollection of what was said, what the tone was, what exactly happened, what the outcome was, what was accomplished, what wasn't accomplished. And I think sometimes, you know, and again, I, I don't mean to say that, you know, this book or any other book can ever be a perfect 100% retelling of this is exactly to the T, exactly what happened. You're always trying to get as close to that as possible. But one of the things as a reader that's sometimes frustrating to me is when you'll read about, and this isn't just in relation to wrestling, this is in relation to a lot of things, you'll see things written about a behind closed doors conversation um, written um, as if 
this one perspective is is absolutely factual, right? So um, the person writing it wasn't there, but they almost give you the impression that they were there because they've obviously got a single source or maybe a limited number of sources who've put forward their story. So um, I think when it comes to Vince Russo, you'll see in the book that there are a number of controversial things in there that have to do with his tenure. And what I tried to do was, you know, acknowledge some of the criticism that he has faced, but also give him an opportunity to respond to that. Um, and then yeah. hear from different people within the company who felt strongly about it. You know, some people felt that his, um, you know, creative decisions, you know, didn't help. You know, other people held the opposite view. Some people had very nuanced opinions when it came to that. I think one of the, one of the best summaries um, that I remember hearing, which I think made it in the book, and I'm really struggling to remember who, who said this now, but there's, there's someone, it may have been Alan Sharp, who was in charge of the PR for WCW. I, I think there's a section in the book where he talks about, like, pretty much this just wasn't a good fit because you had uh, a writing team coming from the WWF, you know, Russo and Ferrara, that were known for extremely over-the-top, risque, you know, intensely um, sort of, sort of uh, physical, you know, violent um, and, and chaotic shows. And now we're bringing them into a company where, um, you know, our, our company culture does not really allow for that. And we have elements within Turner that are not going to be very excited to hear about um, some of these more controversial elements. And I, and, and I think, so you try to kind of sprinkle in, you know, takes like that as well, which tell the reader that it's not as simple as good idea equals great business and bad idea equals bad business. I mean, there's, there's so many intricacies that come to a professional wrestling company being housed within this massive corporate empire. And the fact that you had a lot of people that interfaced and interacted with WCW and, and were very important when it came to what happened with WCW that didn't see it and didn't um, appreciate it and in some cases even when it was doing well. So I, I think a lot of times we can kind of fall into that trap as, as fans, as outsiders. It's like, well, the rating was good, the pay-per-view buy rate was good, so, you know, whoever the booker is, you know, give that man a raise. And it's just, um, that's one of the things I took away from doing the book is how much more complex it can uh, it can certainly be right um now look i'll be honest with you guy i haven't read the whole thing yet i'm only a little bit of the way through um but i was still excited to have the chance to talk to you about the book um so if i'm asking you did you speak to this person or that person <laughs> i'm not there yet but like I'm obviously it for you <laughs> <laughs> i'm incredibly excited um but uh you know uh I wanted to do this interview and ask certain questions so that people who are watching this might be like, Oh, okay. He talks to this guy. He talks to that guy. Okay. I'll buy the book too. Um, so that's kind of the way I'm, I'm mapping this out. Um, gotcha. Uh, no, so I continue. And I, and I was just going to say as well, I mean, if, you know, um, if people are wondering, um, well, you know, a little bit more about the verification process. Like how do you kind of filter out the accurate remembrances from maybe the not so accurate? You know, one of the things I think that you will see, Carl, as you get into the book is I was very fortunate. Again, so much of this really had to do with luck and timing, I think. 
and maybe a little bit of perseverance on my part, but I was very fortunate to come across a whole treasure trove of company materials and documents and memos and financial statements wow. that I was able to use to cross-reference some of the claims that I'm hearing on the other end of the phone. So if someone is telling me that, oh, in this particular year, you know, we gross this much in revenue, I was able to open up that filing cabinet, take a look at the statement. Okay, is this person, you know, in the same ballpark? Are they pulling this out of, you know, where? Are they actually giving me the exact number? So that was another way that you were able to kind of filter through um, some of the content that was was very useful and, and some of it that, you know, kind of went to the side a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to keep name dropping a few more names before I get to my final few questions here, Guy. Um, sure. Hulk Hogan, did you have the chance yeah. to talk to Hulk? You know, I didn't, unfortunately. So sorry to disappoint you on That's that okay. One, but, That's okay. Um, I want to say at that time, again, I'm thinking back, a number of years here but i think this would have coincided with the controversy that he embroiled uh, himself got got involved in uh with the videotape and everything else okay so you know if, if you remember there were a period of years where he was definitely laying low he was kind of out of the spotlight for a period of time um i do vaguely remember that kind of being a stumbling block in terms of getting in touch with with him um, definitely had communication with um, some people close to him, but I think that was ultimately the reason why that that couldn't happen. Okay, that's fine. I just uh, and if there's if I mention someone that you didn't get to interview, trust me, it's not going to disappoint me. You have 120 <laughs> people, guy. You've done well. I'll just I'll just lie to you and tell you that I did. <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't read the whole thing yet, so you don't know yet. Anyway, so. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, Goldberg. No, so again, Goldberg is another, um, you know, came back to, I mean, it'd be interesting to pull up exactly when he did come back with the WWE actually, which is wow. quite surprising to, you know, to me, because in starting to write the book, you know, at that time, he had only had his one year sort of come back with the company and it seemed like he was done. And now it seems like the guy is just a perennial, whenever they have a, I guess, a Saturday tour or they need to plug a gap somewhere, here comes Goldberg. So it's yeah. crazy. But I'll, yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell, I'll tell you just a few of the names, you know, that will definitely on on the wrestling side. So Kevin Nash, you know, was really, really important um, to to get him to talk about this. He gave some great insight, you know, not not just about the two companies and the move that he and Scott Hall made, but also, you know, what what it was like when he, uh, if you remember, progressed to becoming actually the booker of WCW for a while. Yeah. And what that whole dynamic was like and some of the challenges he had there was very that was very interesting uh ddp was someone that um you know brought just a, a wealth of of knowledge and you talk about someone that once you get into the conversation you're able to trigger things that, that bring about some very important memories i mean he there's a, a few stories that he brings up in the book that I guarantee you haven't heard from him before. And I think that was just a function of the depth of the conversation that we were able to have. And unfortunately I was able to kind of remind him of some things maybe he hadn't remembered before. Uh, Kevin Sullivan, you know, is another very, um, a very important interviewee that I was able to talk to on the wrestling side, but also on the booking side. 
you know, Buff Bagwell, who was someone who was with WCW, I mean, from, he kind of saw it all, you know, yeah. from 91, 91, I guess, to 01, you know, through all the different changes, the good times, the bad. There's probably some other people that I'm forgetting on the wrestling side, um, but you combine that with the, you know, a lot of the high-profile Turner people, um, you know, the Eric Bischoff, uh, you know, piece as well, which is huge. And, you know, if I was to sit here and try to remember all of them, I couldn't, but there's, like, as I say, you know, over 120 when uh, when all was said and done. Right, cool. Uh, I assume Bill Bush as well? So i got to be careful about that one because he was not um oh. you don't you don't hear from him in the book you don't you don't hear him quoted in the book but uh okay yeah okay we'll leave it there um mm-hmm. so through this process uh <clears throat> were there people that you know that thought certain things about wcw's demise or people you even don't know that have maybe expressed to you that now they have a different opinion on what happened um people that might have believed the the narrative that was out there beforehand. Um, so did this or has this book continued to fix those misconceptions? That's a great question. I think one of the really nice things that's come out of this book is I do think that it, it has, I don't want to overstate it at all, but I think it's played a small role for some people in terms of them being able to put into context more accurately what this period of their life was like. What I mean by that is in the immediate months and years after WCW collapsed, if you were to talk to a lot of the people associated with the company, especially those people who are full-time, you know, employees behind the scenes, there was a lot of um, resentment, a lot of anger, um, a lot of people, you know, it, this was a this was a subject they did not want to revisit um, because they were able for a period of time to have, you know, a great salary and a great quality of life, you know, from from the standpoint of being able to travel and go to other cities and go to other countries and for a while, you know, to be associated with the number one program on cable television. I mean, that's a huge feather in the cap of of anyone, right? Whether you're working behind the scenes or you're actually on camera. But, but when things started to decline, as you know, you know, going back and watching the old shows and having lived through it, it was a very slow, painful uh, decline for WCW in those last couple of years. And there were, there were very many sort of false, you know, uh, turning points and, and fresh starts. And there were so many times in the last couple of years, you were like, okay, this is, this is a new era. We're going to forget everything that just happened in the last few months. And we're starting afresh and, and everything has changed because of this, you know, and then three months would go by and, and everything would, would totally change again. And that process just repeated itself in a very frustrating way. And you look at, you know, some of the metrics in 99, 2000, 2001, WCW, relatively speaking, you know, still had a pretty committed television audience in the United States. Was it, anywhere approximating what it was at its peak no but it wasn't as if the the number cratered you know into into nothingness the the metric that really did crater was the percentage of the audience that were willing to pay for the wcw product you know that's one of the more underappreciated elements of this whole story i think is in the last 18 months look at the pay-per-view buy rates 
there were still millions of people that were willing to sample WCW on a weekly basis, but there were very few of them who were willing to actually pay for the product, which was a big, uh, big factor, I think, in, in the decline. So, um, but to answer your question, you know, you know, um, at one point in time, I think a lot of the fallout from that disaster in the last couple of years was still very much on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, and wrestling was something that kind of left a bad taste in their mouth. Now that the book is, and I don't want to say it's because of the book, but now more importantly, because enough time has passed, and then maybe throw into that as a secondary or tertiary factor, the book coming out as well. I think, I think it's helped, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot more people put this whole thing into context and really just have gratitude that they were associated with it. Like, okay, it didn't end up the way that I wanted to, but wow, what a great period in my life. And I suppose if you think about it, right, if you're in your 20s and 30s in the 1990s and WCW collapses, you're thinking, well, you know, that sucks. Why, why couldn't we have kept that going? Well, at least I'm, I'm young enough to have the chance to do that again. And then maybe when you get to your 50s, late 50s, 60s, there's that realization that, oh, actually, this was a pretty unique thing that happened. And maybe this was the highlight of my career, or maybe maybe this was, you know, something that, that actually I should feel very lucky to be part of. And I think that sense has sort of seeped into um, the, the, the sentiments that you're hearing more and more about WCW now. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I think this is, this has been such an incredibly important book guy uh, and you should be so proud of what you've accomplished. And I, I want to ask you, when did you, firstly, when did you know, okay, I think it's done. And how did you mm. celebrate when it was finally finished? <laughs> oh man. So, <laughs> well, I, you mentioned the the podcast, the Secrets of Nitro podcast. You know, I think the first episode we put out, and it's still out there, people can listen to it, would have been September of 17, 2017. And if you listen to that, I think we're talking about the book that it's going to come out in March. Um, evidently, what happened is, as we got closer to March, I realized there's no chance this is going to happen. There's so many more people are coming to the forefront. I'm getting, you know, information coming in you know, just on a daily basis. So I had to postpone it to, to May. And then eventually that ended up being pushed back to July of 2018. So um, once once we kind of announced, you know, that final postponement, um, it was like, okay, no matter what the book is coming out, it doesn't matter <laughs> if, you know, if Ted, if Ted Turner shows up at my house tomorrow and says, wait, you know, stop everything. I want to, I want to be interviewed. Okay. Maybe, maybe then we'll, we'll, We'll uh, go back to the drawing board, but but yeah. other than that, you know. So, you know, basically, yeah, spring of late spring of 2018, we knew that July was going to be the the final date. Um, in terms of <laughs> celebrating the book coming out, uh, it's kind of funny that you asked that because I'm not sure I really ever did because it was like so much work just to get it out on time, and then once it's out, you don't know like what the reaction is going to be right so you're not sat there saying all right now i'll just let the plaudits come in you're kind all of right. like all right well is anyone even going to care like is anyone because i thought that there would be the listeners to the podcast would check it out and then i thought okay they'll recommend it to one or two people and maybe for a month or two like i'll get some emails about it and then you just 
you contrast that with the monster that it turned into. Um, wow, just blow, I'm, I'm still, when I think about it, just very much blown away. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll do the celebrating for you tonight. I'm going to have a few cold beers. Uh, nice one. Foster's summer. is it? I would, I would imagine, right? Uh, no, you know what? It's funny that you say that. This is called Emu Export. Okay. Um, so it's one of the more popular Australian beers. But I'll tell you this about Foster's. Huh. Yeah. Foster's isn't even really that popular in Australia. No. Foster's. You my whole world. I'm you know. sorry. I'm sorry. Wow. It's true. Foster's was oh. created as uh, something to sell to the international market. Is um, that right? I, I work in a liquor store part time on the side. We don't yeah. even sell Foster's. Uh, really? No, we did, but oh it didn't sell very well. We, we had them in a six pack of cans. It didn't sell very well. Uh, you, right. you can get it in select liquor stores in Australia, uh, but it is few and far between. I'm sorry to, to break your heart there, Dad. <laughs> well, it's kind of like, because being from the UK, it's kind of like when people say to me here, like, oh, did you grow up drinking like a spot of afternoon tea? And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I don't know anyone <laughs> who ever drank tea for any reason, but <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah, so I'm learning things about you, and you're learning things about Australia. So this, yeah, is, this has I been a, a collaboration of learning tonight, uh, Guy. Yeah. Um, so uh, before I get to my last couple of questions, there's just one more about this book that I want to ask you. What means most to you about this book, Nitro? Well, I think, you know, I was very lucky to have the ability to revisit a time frame, which I think is very special to a number of us who grew up during this time. Um, I think, I, I, I don't want to kind of go too off the wall here, so drag me back if I, if I go off on too much of a tangent, but I think there's a deeper reason maybe as to why um, this time period of wrestling, sports, entertainment, you know, television, you name it, has such a staying power. And I think maybe there's kind of a deeper recognition on the part of the people who lived through it that it's not so much the, con it, it primarily it is the content, but it's also the context in which it happened. You know, there's a recognition that it, it's a time that was perhaps a simpler time, you know, perhaps a better time in some respects, maybe maybe not in all respects, but it, it's, a, it's an era that is just in such contrast to um, to the way things are today. Um, and I think that that does account for it quite honestly. Um, you know, and, and I could, I could go into a lot more depth about that, but I, I, I think that when it comes to the success of the Monday night wars, you had your, your necessary ingredients, which were, you know, the personalities involved, you know, the, the, the Eric Bischoff's, the Vince McMahon's, the Ted Turner's, the wrestlers themselves, obviously, you know, the, the production people, everyone who worked on the shows, the, those things were all necessary. In other words, without those things, it never would have become anywhere near as popular as it was. But over time, you had kind of a force multiplication effect because of what was happening in the culture, what was happening with some of the techno technological changes in society, um, what was happening across the media landscape. All of these things actually made wrestling bigger. And so it was the, 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 the confluence of a number of things at the same time. And so to answer your question, to be able to go back and kind of reflect on that and meditate on that, 
and put all of that into context. Um, you know, I feel, again, very grateful to have the opportunity to do that and to be able to have solidified and, and established a lot of really cool relationships out of this as well. Um, you know, I couldn't, couldn't really ask for more when it comes to that. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Uh, that's really cool. And, uh, you know, I just want to say, you know, to everyone out there, <clears throat> this is the real deal. You want to know what really happened? There's a lot of glare coming from the light here, but there's the, there's a cover Goldberg's taking the power bomb there. It's, I love the cover by the way. Um, that's another question. How'd you come up with the cover? Yeah. So I, what I wanted to do was to, um, have something on the cover that, um, hopefully people had, hadn't seen before. Now, obviously everyone knows that match. Everyone knows exactly what that, that image is from. Um, but I, I wanted the actual, the actual image to be something, something fresh. Um, and I suppose what I was trying to do there was um, a little bit of misdirection, to be honest with you, because I'm, I'm again, we're kind of kind of getting into the weeds here, but I'm, I'm trying to, um, I suppose, give you the impression that, okay, this is, this is going to be the story about WCW that you've always heard about, right? Which was, um, if only they would have booked this number, these number of events correctly, or made this creative decision, the company would still be in existence to this day. Um, and and as you get into the book, and you'll find this as well, you'll realize that that's that's not at all um, the entirety of of what happened. So um, th there's there's a little bit of psychology behind it. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no, because I'm kind of thinking when I look at it, like the power bomb to Goldberg is. Maybe that's one of the last great moments that happened at the peak just before 99 hit and things just things just started uh, you know changing within the company. Yeah, it's it's a perfect midway point as well. It's the exact midway point basically of the Nitro era. That was that was another kind of that was part of the thought process as well. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, I wanted, I mean, I know we've spoke about Secrets of Nitro with Neil Pruitt a little bit here, but, um, you know, that podcast, tell me a, a little bit about, you know, uh, I guess you're friends with Neil, you're having conversations with him. Is that essentially, you know, we're going to record this stuff and get that out there? Yeah, so what happened with that was, you know, I reached out to Neil again for, People who don't know, he was the famous voice of the NWO. He was one of the main members of the production staff with WCW. Someone that, you know, does, <laughs> has retained a lot when it comes to his memories of his time working for the company and, and holds that time of his life actually quite close to his heart, really remembers it fondly. Although he was one of those people that I mentioned, you know, may not have had that same reaction closer to the time of WCW going away. But what happened was, you know, after quite a, lot, a bit of reluctance on his part, um, you know, I did end up speaking to Neil. And then I had some follow-up questions for him, and he 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 uh, responded in a pretty unique way. What he would do is he would actually drive home, and I guess you know he had some time to kill, so he would hit record on his phone, uh -huh. and he would say, you know, hey guy, you know, you you sent me that message about um, I don't know whatever. Um, I figured, you know, the best way to respond is just let me kind of talk this through and see what, um, see what comes to mind. And so I would get these like 10, 12 minute audio clips from him 
And I'm like, this stuff is gold because not only has he answered my question, he's gone off on a bunch of tangents that <laughs> like people would be very interested in hearing about, right? So like the famous story that he loves to tell is when they went to Alcatraz with Roddy Piper. <laughs> like yeah. like as, as a fan, you're just watching that and you're like, okay, they're at Alcatraz, I guess. He's on a boat. Like this is kind of weird. But you don't necessarily think about like how did they get there like what what happened on the day like is he really standing on a boat like that kind of looks like they're in the middle of the water like what's going on so um that was the first episode of our, our podcast and that was born out of these little clips that he would send me so eventually i said look you know i think people need to or people would be interested in hearing about this stuff there's not really a podcast where you have someone who is involved in production I mean, maybe there is now, I don't know, but at that time, I don't think there was, you know, a production team member talking about the business. Um, so I said, I think it'll get some traction and it will be a way to get the word out about the book as well, because, you know, the only thing harder than um, starting to recruit people to interview without any contacts is trying to uh, distribute a book to a non-existent audience. So you need... <laughs> You know, you need somewhere to start. And, and obviously the podcast listeners was was that starting point. So Secrets of Nitro, um, as we said, it's still active. I think there's like 41, 42 shows. And um, hopefully we'll be doing more next year as well. Awesome, bro. Awesome. And I, I'm going to say this. I, I'm, I'm tooting my own horn here. I believe I was at least one of the first 20 people to have liked the Facebook page when it went up. So I That's was amazing. Like, I was That's... onto it so quickly. Like, I don't know <laughs> how I found it, but I just, it popped up and I'm like, boom. And yeah. That's from amazing. There. Yeah. Well, thank it. you. You're welcome. Um, so uh, before I get to five second frenzy, Guy Evans, are you planning on writing any more books? Absolutely. I can tell you that um, I've been working on a follow-up to this book almost as soon as it came out. Um, that's probably why there wasn't a lot of celebrating. It was just, okay. you know, okay, this this is working. So let's, uh, you know, originally I thought I would do one book about wrestling just because um, it is a pretty mammoth task if you want to do something like this to do it well. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you can string something together. I'm pretty sure now with all of the shows up on the network. It's not like you have to go and, you know, search for tapes and tracking down the footage. Like if someone just wants to do a recap of, you know, what happened in a particular year, yeah, you can you can string that together pretty quickly. But um, to do the, the kind of book that I wanted to do, it takes a lot of time. Um, but I have been working on a follow-up. Um, I would like to say next year, I can really put out a lot more information about that. Um, but what I really want to do Carl, is I want to give people something that's on the level or, or approximating the level of, of this book. You know, I, I want to make sure that if people take their time to, to, to check something out that I've written, that they're going to go away from it wanting, hopefully, to revisit it again. Um, and that's, that's one of the nicest things that I hear from people over email is like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm starting to go through your book for a second time or um, you know, now we have the, the book in audio format. It's up on, on Audible and uh, on, on the iTunes store as well. So, you know, I've had a lot of people say, like, I read your book when it came out. You may have read it again. And now I bought the audio because I just want to listen to it on my way to work or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So so that's that's kind of like that's the most gratifying thing you can accomplish is when people 
are not just like consuming something that you've done and putting it to the side, but saying to themselves, okay, I'm, I'm going to put this up on the shelf. And in six months or a year, you know, I can see myself going back and, and reading that again, or I can see myself just flicking through this thing and reading a chapter here, a chapter there. And that's really what I'm trying to, to, to accomplish with this next one as well. So it will take some time, but it will be coming out for sure. Excellent. Excellent. That's uh, it's great news. And I also have the audio book as well as the book because Beautiful. sometimes I I'm too lazy to just hold a book like this. And I just want, I just want to just sit here, not do anything and just listen. So <laughs> I like it. Well, thank um, you. You're welcome guy. And uh, so guy, we're getting to the segment of the show here as we're coming to the end, we're about to sail off into the sunset. It's called five second frenzy. Now, five second frenzy, I ask you about 10 quick fire questions and just to get to know you and look, you're not a wrestler, so you might actually be able to answer these questions within five <laughs> seconds, uh, but most of the time they break that rule. So <laughs> here we All go, right, guys. Who is your favorite wrestler? You know what? I have to say, uh, Bill Goldberg, I would say thinking back then was, was definitely as a fan at that particular time, number one for me, for sure. Yeah. And, and I know there's a lot of like fanboys today that see Goldberg there now and get annoyed at the fact he doesn't do a moonsault or whatever, but they don't understand what it was like back in the day, back <laughs> in the late nineties, this guy was a superhero. You, everyone, like all my friends, when we watch nitro, you're all, you will stand up when Goldberg's about to have a match. Cause you know, something crazy is about, he's about to kill someone. So anyone well, out there that, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. Just anyone out there that wants to talk crap about Goldberg, you weren't there, man. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to, to add on, I know, you know, again, we're already breaking the rule, it seems like, but <laughs> this this is kind of what I was getting at with something we said earlier about maybe some of the aspects to entertainment and, and, and entertainment culture more broadly that have been lost. Um, the mystique factor, right? So, it's just really hard, I think, in today's environment where you have social media and you have wrestlers out there that, you know, I've seen in many cases, they'll have a social media account in their real name and it will be like, this is me, but I play the character of such and such on WWE TV. Um, and they're sharing everything on Instagram and Twitter. And, you know, I have considered to myself that maybe for today's fan, um, that's something that bonds them maybe more closely with the performers, that relatability factor. But the whole psychology, you know, in the mid to late 90s and prior to that, I, I believe was um, these people are larger than life because yeah. they're not ev everyday people, right? Like, I don't want to believe that Goldberg is doing the same things that, you know, the rest of the population is doing. This is like <laughs> a larger than life character that is just, showing up and killing people for two minutes and we don't see him again so as a as a fan and especially when you're a young person like your mind fills in the gaps right so so mystique is so important for something like wrestling to exist and i just wonder that you know so much is being done to eliminate that now it just it, it, I don't know. Maybe it's not a big issue for a lot of people, but it is for, for fans like me, I think. I totally jive with that, man. You know, as a kid, I wouldn't want to know that Goldberg's favorite meal is, you know, roast duck or something like that. 
I want to think that Goldberg <laughs> ate steel and barbed wire for his meal. You know, exactly. that's what I would have thought. You know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, your favorite match of all time? Well, it kind of follows in from the first um, question, and this will give people a an idea of like what attracted me to wrestling. It, you know, Goldberg and Hogan at the Georgia Dome. Like, is that is that a five star classic? Is that a a technical wrestling exhibition obviously not you know but um what always drew, drew me in as a fan of you know sports was like the atmosphere the reaction of the crowd to see yeah. people going crazy you look at the the you know when charles robinson counts the three there you look at the reaction of the audience not a single person gives a crap about um the star rating of the match or what moves were executed i believe that a lot of those 41,000 people actually forgot they're watching a wrestling show. I mean, it's like to get that kind of reaction and that kind of intensity. And what's really interesting is you talk to anyone who was in the building that night and like, they'll get goosebumps a lot of times talking about that reaction. So what we experienced on the TV, just imagine what it was like in the arena. Oh man. I, every time I watch it, man, every time I watch it, I get my hairs stand on their end. I get goosebumps. Like, yep. that was an incredible, incredible. When he picked him up and he had him up. Oh, mm-hmm. God. That's and Shivani's calling the match. Uh, we can go Amazing. on about that. We could do a whole show just about that match, I think. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, your favorite book? Wrestling wise or just period? Oh, just anything. Oh, man. Oh, God. You know, I'll I'll try to keep it somewhat in this realm. I, I read a lot of sports books, and um, there's a book by a guy named Sam Smith called The Jordan Rules, uh, which is all about the uh, the Chicago Bulls, right? So I, I'm again, this could be a whole other podcast, but like I'm a huge, you know, not so much anymore, but a, a huge NBA fan. Like going back to being a kid and basketball is really what got me into American sort of culture actually. And then, you know, wrestling came along with that eventually. So there's a book called the Jordan rules, which is a book that could not be written today because it's, I mean, you talk about an inside account of the, that team. Uh, the guy basically is in the locker room. He's hearing the conversations between the players. He's riding the bus going to and from games. And he, he, wrote this very detailed account of this entire season and it's just one of the most you know even i I would say even if you know nothing about the people involved if you just do a bit of cursory research before reading and then read it um you know it's still a very very uh it still stands up today especially because it's very tough to get that kind of access today as well so that's a great awesome i'll have to check that out because i well when i was a kid like when I was watching WCW, I also watched the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan was my hero. So um, loved the documentary that was on Netflix. And yeah, oh, that would definitely amazing. be something. Um, favorite That's TV true. show? Oh, man. These are, these are some tough questions. Now I can see why <laughs> these guys are taking like 10 minutes to answer. Maybe, maybe it isn't all the bumps. It's just it's, these are the hard questions. Uh, there's just so many. I mean, I, I think back to... You know whether it's Breaking Bad or ah yeah, it's my uh, break. That would have to be up there. You know, I really love the show Mad Men. Yeah, um, that's no longer on the air now. You know, that was a brilliant show. Uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. You know, would be up there. 
even even a show that is kind of old now people wouldn't think of that the larry sanders show okay, um, yeah. which is actually actually mentioned in this book at, at one point um i would have people go back and check that out too right cool man um yeah breaking bad's probably my favorite show but the sopranos is pretty tough it's, oh it's god how could i forget how could i forget yeah that has to be up there and then there's homeland and walking dead or human beat but, it goes on and on yeah uh favorite yeah. film i'm gonna make it harder for you again i think you know i'd have to say i'm not sure if you've seen this one carlito's way have you ever seen yes carlito's i do way? al pacino yeah no, <laughs> i i i, I, lo- I love that film from a I guess from you know the the cinematography, um, just just visually, I think that's a really interesting film, um, and you know, I think they accomplish a really <clears throat> difficult task, which is you take a very flawed character and make them sympathetic yeah. over the course of I don't know how long it is, two hours, whatever it is. That is an incredible skill in and of itself. Um, so that that's a great movie. Absolutely. I recommend it to anyone out there. And now I'm actually thinking I might watch it again in the next few days. Um, oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, favorite musical artist. Oh man. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know if I can again, narrow it down to one. Um, especially since, you know, I'm, I'm a dad now. So like, I'm so out of sync with what the heck is going on. So I'd have well, to Well, I mean, you know what? The bands from back in the day are cool. They're way better than what's going on today. Let's be honest. I always, I always liked Nirvana, um, you know, growing up. Uh, that was something I always heard from like my, my older brother. And that was always on in the house. Um, kind of got into like hip hop and, you know, mid to late nineties, like that whole era. So any, anything from there is, is pretty much good, but I'm just, wow. I'm, I'm really out of touch when it comes to today, to be honest. Yeah. No, don't worry about today. Everything that's going on today isn't as good as what was going on in the nineties. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Basketball, uh, uh, wrestling, uh, music. Um, Seems that way, huh? Yeah. Uh, this yeah. is one that's not specific to the nineties favorite food. Um, I don't think anything can be like a good steak, to be honest with you. I mean, I, 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 over here in New York, I like taking my family to uh, Outback Steakhouse. Now, you're probably going to tell me that that's fake. Australian has nothing to do with Australia, but <laughs> in my in my bubble, it does. Okay? So. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll let that one slide. It's all right. Um, okay. But you that's know what? Well, I'm finding that you and I have a lot in common here, Guy. My favorite food is steak. You know, okay. I, my first favorite band was Nirvana. Uh, really? You mentioned the book with, with uh, you know, the balls and stuff. Uh, favorite TV oh. show is Breaking Bad. I know Carlito's Way. It's not my favorite film, though, but it's a fantastic film. So, you know, maybe we're, maybe we're, maybe we're brothers. We were. I'm starting to think something may have gone on, you know, a number <laughs> of decades ago that we're not aware of. But, yeah. <laughs> um, your favorite place to eat, would that be Outback Steakhouse? Um, you know, there's a place you can look this up, um, here. I, so I live in Brooklyn and there's a place called Arirang, which is a hibachi grill, um, which is an amazing place to eat. I love to take, take my son there because they'll make the food in front of you. The chefs will do all these antics and it's kind of like they make a whole show around the preparation of the food. Um, okay. All right. Yeah. So I, I kind of enjoy things like that, especially with with my my son now to be able to take him somewhere where 
you know, you're not just going to order and then sit there for an hour. It's like there's a lot leading up to the meal. It's, it's always fun. Yeah, cool. They cook in front of you, right? That's right. That's yeah, right. That's, that's really cool. It's a good laugh. Uh, okay. Uh, favorite alcoholic beverage? You know, I'm going to have to say Coors Light, you know, um, would probably be, be mine of, of choice there. Um, evidently, if I'm if I'm in Australia, what is, what is the what is your drink of choice again? Uh, it'll be Emu Export, mate. Uh, good old okay. red can, we call it. <laughs> so, so I, I learned something new there tonight because I, I would have thought Foster's, but hey, I, was, uh, I stand corrected. <laughs> uh, second last one for five second frenzy, guy. It's a bit of a naughty one. Favorite female body part. Oh God! Wow, I'm glad that uh, my wife is in the other room. Um, it's it's got to be the it's, it's got to be the boobs, mate. I don't know how you can how you can how you can go with anything else. I don't know who would say anything else. Right, fantastic answer. Love it. Um, I, I love I love throwing that one in there because you know we're talking about these serious things, and then it's all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. oh okay. Um, and lastly, guy, look, I don't think you've even sworn since being on the show tonight uh maybe because you got some youngins in the household uh you don't curse but what's your favorite curse word well look i think um i think a good fuck will will pretty much make any any sentence uh more impactful funnier so it's all about it's all about the placement though you know and it's all about see i learned this from from growing up and playing sports and like you know i i was a you know, I've had a long time coaching myself and stuff like that. Like, if you if you say the same thing too often, it loses all impact, right? So, actually, when you go back and listen to this, you'll see that I I, I may have thrown in a couple of curses here or there, but right. they were very well placed. You see, to have an impact, and that's that's what it's all about. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, uh, Guy Evans, that's the end of Five Second Friends. You want to thank you for your time uh, this morning for you. Well, now I think it's uh, approaching. Uh, the afternoon for you, but uh, this evening for me, really enjoyed this conversation. And I know maybe I should have read the whole thing before I interviewed you, but I just kind of felt like to me, it was interesting to talk to you when I'm just a little bit into it. So um, I want to thank you for your time. And I want to say you should be so proud of what you've accomplished with this great book here that everyone is talking about. Everyone is buying Nitro. And, um, you know, again, thank you for your time. I very much appreciate it, Colin. Anytime you want to have me back on, just let me know. No worries, Guy. Thank you again. And everyone out there, thank you for joining us here on the WZWA Network. I am your host, as per usual, Californian Fury, alongside my new friend, Guy Evans, talking about the book Nitro. And it's been a great evening, and we will see you next time. Thank you.